and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, first time we're going to Bangkok, Kobus, uh, where we're joined uh, by Ilaria Carosa, who uh, just completed uh, last year her dissertation at the School of Oriental and African Studies on Chinese-Gabonese relations. She's now doing a five-month internship with the United Nations in Bangkok and hopes, uh, fingers crossed, to be doing her PhD back in London on China-Africa relations sometime next year. Uh, a very good evening to you, Ilaria. Good evening to both of you guys. Well, we're going to focus, because we have Aladia on the show today, we're going to focus on Chinese-Gabonese relations. And this is one of the most interesting uh, kind of case studies that, that's out there, in part because it really highlights some of the, the difficulties that the Chinese are having, and it really challenges a lot of the perceptions and misperceptions about the Chinese in Africa. Kobus, you'll recall, I think it was maybe two years ago that we spoke with Johanna Janssen on this. And for those of you who are interested in Sino-Gabonese relations and kind of Sino-France-Afrique relations in general, Johanna Janssen's research is probably, I think, the benchmark in this area. Uh, she's a scholar out of Denmark right now. She's originally Swedish. Uh, but uh, we're going to kind of take a different angle today and take advantage of Ilaria's presence on the show. Ilaria, you finished your, your dissertation, and you talked a lot about the misperceptions of the Chinese in, in Gabon and how in some ways it represents a broader example of the misperceptions of the Chinese in Africa. Africa. So before we get too detailed on, on, on the details of, of Sino-Gabonese relations, talk a little bit about the misperceptions that you encountered in your research. Yeah, well, actually, it's uh, like uh, you hear a lot about misperceptions when you, uh, when you get to the topic of China and Africa. And, well, mostly, um, like um, what I've been seeing here is that um, misperceptions are, always come from well, mainly, uh, well, cultural and language misunderstandings, and, and that's, uh, that's what also happened in Gabon as well. But then, like, even generally speaking, um, there has been, like, recently, um, well, in the last decade at least, like, uh, accusations uh, from, the, from the West of, of, of China as being a neo-colonialist power in Africa, and that one of the arguments of my dissertation was actually that so far, at least in Gabon, China is not any colonialist power, and that these um, misperceptions and misunderstandings are, are, are often caused and, and uh, actually, like, they stem from Western concerns over uh, China's increasing um, involvement in country, you know? So, Kobus, here's the, the word that came up very early in the conversation, and I was hoping that Ladia would bring it up, which is the word neocolonization and the neocolonial kind of thread. It's always interesting to me when people talk about Chinese neocolonialism because one of the things that you and I keep reminding uh, our community on Facebook is the fact that if you look at uh, where China stands as a foreign direct investor across the continent, it remains a small player for the most part compared to the French, the Dutch, the British, uh, and other Europeans. And so what I found interesting in Eladia's uh, dissertation was the fact that this neocolonial thread came up even in a country where the French neocolonial influence still remains strong. Yeah, I wonder, you know, um, I think Ilario would probably know better than I would, but um, it seems to me that, that part of that that issue is that p people in Africa are just so used to a European 
presence. You know that it, it Europe has, in a weird way, kind of become part of the part of the furniture. You know, uh, and um, part of the background. And we're it's a long time. You know, from from kind of very fiery anti-neocolonial rhetoric in Africa generally. I mean, you, you, it does it does kind of crop up here and there. But I mean, we're not living in a kind of a France Fanon kind of era of like kick them out. You know, um, so there seems to be uh, you know people are kind of used to France. I would guess you know kind of a now it becomes almost difficult to see France while the the, the kind of new presence of China isn't only very visible, but it also it becomes this kind of lightning rod for for things that people have have are bothered by, but feel that they can't generally change because France is never going to go away. I don't know if you agree, Ilaria. Yeah, well, actually, um, as as you said, like China is uh, is a is a newcomer in Africa, right? So they're kind of like used to European presence, as you said, whereas they're less accustomed with uh, with Chinese practices, like in terms of business, economics, whatever. They're just less used to it. So sometimes they don't just don't know how to deal with it. Like I'm talking especially of of the people, you know, because at the government level, it's easier when you have diplomacy tools, and it's it's, it's way easier. Whereas at the grassroots level, these um, the, 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 there is the, the, where the problems come, you know. So let me uh, let, now that we've kind of set the table a little bit. Let me kind of give a little bit of background information for those who may not be familiar with both Franco-Gabonese relations and then now Sino-Gabonese relations. A couple names that we that are very important here. Uh, president, uh, former President Omar Bongo. Omar Bongo, he led uh, Gabon for 42 years. He died in 2009. His son, Ali Bongo, took over in 2009 uh, in a very controversial election. Uh, Gabon has never really been known for free, fair, and open elections. It's not been a democratic country. Uh, and that is in large part due to the to the work of, of one man in particular who's very important uh, in, in not only in Gabon, but also France-Afrique in general. His name is Jacques Focard. And Jacques Focard was really the point man for Charles de Gaulle to set up the France-Afrique relationships and to maintain the diplomatic presence, but also to be the, the go-between between France's oil companies and natural resource companies and their African colonies, and then later their post-colonial relationships as well. And in particular in Gabon, one relationship stands out more than any, and that is of Elf. And Elf Aquitaine is the, was formerly the French national oil company. It was later privatized. But so much of the corruption in between France and Gabon uh, passed through Elf. And so when we think of the, the different players and the actors, that's where we are now. Now, since uh, almost Bongo, he since he passed away in 2009, he you know if you believe some of the the, the later research that's now coming out about uh, about Gabon French Gabon relations, it wasn't necessarily that France controlled Gabon, but also that Omar Bongo was very influential in French domestic politics. But since his death, those ties have have weakened a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit, opening up the door for both the Americans and the Chinese to come in. However, though, and this is where I want to get your point of view. There are some complications for the Chinese and for all outside players coming into a country like Gabon. First and foremost, as Kobus said, they this is a French system. This is not just language and culture, but this is in a French administrative system. It's a French legal system. And, it, it, and it, the French are still very, very influential. So for any outsider, including the Chinese, it must feel impenetrable for them to try and get a foothold in, in a country like Gabon. So how big of a disadvantage is that? for them. 
Oh, it's actually a big, big, big disadvantage for the Chinese. Well, not just for the Chinese, as you said, but mostly for the Chinese, because even though they started official diplomatic relations in the in the nineteen in nineteen seventy four, it actually took uh, over thirty years for these relations to actually translate into tangible economic results. And um, although the Chinese are cooperating with the bond in in, in several um, sectors and aspects of the economy, and, and only the economy, like they're, they're they're giving their aid in the health sector, in the educational sector, in the agricultural sector, and then several aid packages that mostly are aimed at infrastructure building. There are still some huge challenges, and what I found most importantly, like about the um, relations, about the final governance relations, is that uh, there are two main um, obstacles to the Chinese um, involvement in, in Gabon, and like one, of course, is this long-standing relations with France, which the Chinese are finding difficult to face. And, and the second is the um, country's uh, recent um, policy of nationalizations, but it's mostly, as you said, about the French influence, which is not only in the economy, but it's in the legal system, administrative system, and, and the language as well. Um, I, you know, I wonder if we could talk a little about the, the, this move towards nationalization. Is this part of you know, a reaction against French influence mostly, or is it also, um, you know, kind of against all, kind of all these, these newcomers? Um, and do you foresee that the nationalization is actually really going to go ahead? Well, um, I think what what President um, uh, Bongo is now trying to do is, at the same time, diversifying the economy in order to, um, well, let's say, try and, and, and get away both from France and from oil revenues. Um, and, and at the same time, he's trying to attract other foreign investors. So it's kind of a contradiction here. So if he pursues this uh, program of nationalization, he might actually in, in some way reject uh, foreign investors to come to, to his country. So he needs to be aware of this of this risk in, in pursuing his policy of nationalization. He's just, he still intends to do so in the, in, in the future. Now, Kobus, in the pre-show, we were talking about how the, the trend of nationalization uh, in Gabon is very similar to what we're seeing in Zimbabwe, uh, what they're calling indigenization. What are the comparisons, and is there a trend that's going on, or is it just these two countries as isolated instances? Well, in, in Zimbabwe, indigenization is, is a very complicated issue. Um, you know, it obviously it goes back to the the taking over of, of white-owned farms um, in the early 2000s, which pretty much wrecked the agriculture sector in, in Zimbabwe and caused a lot of economic problems. Now there's a, a push from the government to try and get not only big companies, those would include mining companies and banks, um, to be majority owned by, by um, called so-called black Zimbabweans, who, which black Zimbabweans is the issue, um, but then also um, small businesses. So, you know, kind of, so there's a lot of Nigerians and a lot of Chinese who run micro-businesses, like little shops and so on, in, um, in Harare. Um, and those are all supposed to be transferred to, to Zimbabwean owners. Now, it was supposed to have been transferred by the 1st of January. Um, and then the 1st of January came and went and it, nothing really happened. Um, and so now it seems like the government might have kind of retreated from it, although they're saying they haven't. They're saying they're still working it out. Um, you know, kind of the, there's fears that it's going to wreck the economy again. Um, 
you know, kind of there's other fears that, or the other opinions saying that there's this much less disruptive ways of getting more Zimbabweans into business. Um, but you know, kind of it, it seems to play as this kind of kind of populist appeal, you know, which which is something that the Mugabe government has done a lot. Um, I wouldn't say that there's not necessarily a big trend for that across Africa, because as the Zimbabwean, you know, kind of example has shown, it's kind of really difficult to implement. Well, yeah, um, you it, know, it's yeah, one of those I things. Mean, Africa is just a very inter, inter, you know, kind of interconnected economy at the moment. Yeah, it's one of those things that may sound good politically and certainly plays to a nationalist audience, but as we're seeing with Mugabe in Zimbabwe and his failed indigenization programs, and also I think the challenges that Bongo may face in in Gabon, uh, you know, the market can be very, very cruel in punishing these. I mean, as, as, as Alaria pointed out, is that let's say they nationalize. You know, China's got a lot of choice when it comes to oil extraction in Africa. Angola, obviously, is right next door. Uh, their extraction policies out of North Africa are ramping up. So, you know, if Gabon plays too hard to, to deal with, uh, they, have, they have choices. But when we talk about natural resources, Gabon uh, is front and center on this. And it's not just oil. Oil, of course, is their largest, but they also have t- uh, timber and, and manganese. But there's also iron ore, and that's strategically very important for the Chinese. And a lot of you, there's one case in particular that, that gets a lot of attention in Gabon, and it's the Balinga iron ore mine. Tell us about that and what the Chinese involvement is. Yeah, uh, well, the Balinga story is also the story of, like, you know, the difficulties the Chinese firms often have to face when operating in Africa. So to cut the short story, basically the Balinga iron ore deposits are located in the northeast of the country, and they are one of the last unexploited iron ore reserves in the world. And um, although they have the, the deposit has been known since um, the late, um, since uh, like 1895, um, then um, the costs for operating these reserves were always too high, and so like um, the projects were uh, always postponed until 2004 when a first initial agreement was reached um, with a Chinese firm. There were, like, um, other foreign firms, of course, participated in the bid, but then the final challengers were a Brazilian company and then two Chinese companies until the CMEC uh, won the rights for the um, for the exploitation of the mining facility, um, bidding $3 billion for the entire project, uh, which which also involved um, the construction of a railway, a deep water port, a hydroelectric dam, and the mining facility itself. Um, there have been a huge protests from NGOs, which were, of course, concerns over environmental issues and the opacity of the contract, which was never made public. And then what happened is that the, um, while the Grand Probara Dam, the hydroelectric dam, was actually completed and it actually went into operation last August, um, the fate of the Belinga project is still really uncertain and there's, there's also a certain degree of confusion over the issue because like several um, news came out in, in 2012 saying that the Gabonese government was about to remove this project's rights from the Chinese and to give them to the Australian BHP Billiton um, Company. And then the CMEC the same year announced that they were still in talks with the government. And then another article came out in August telling that the uh, protests, following some protests over the environmental concerns um, from the NGOs, that the Gabonese government had actually decided to uh, do additional evaluation of the deposit. And so they, 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 like news were expected to come out in 2014, but then nothing is known so far about this project. There was one additional uh, news um, uh, that actually came out last December, 
and saying that Gabon, that the Gabonese government has cancelled this mining license issued to the Chinese firm. So, uh, and then another one uh, shortly after saying that the Chinese wouldn't mind to cooperate with the Gabonese government um, for the realization of this project. So, the fate of this project is really uncertain, and it's, it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen in the future because most of Sino-Gabonese relations actually depend on successful completion of this, of this project. Um, Ilaria, so as, as you mentioned in, in, your, in your dissertation, you know, so a lot of this development is based on a big ex, export-import bank loan. Um, can yeah. you give us an idea of what, what, if you know, kind of now that the government is jumping back and forth and possibly taking away rights and so on, um, what, what will happen with that massive loan, you know, kind of if, in case the, the project doesn't go ahead? In case the project doesn't go ahead, the Gabonese government, I guess, would have to reimburse at least um, some of the uh, some of the funds that the consortium led by the Chinese firm actually spent uh, in carrying out feasibility studies and other expenses related to the mining site. So I guess they would at least have to reimburse part of this three billion contract, which has been stipulated in uh, 2006, and that's going to be a big issue. Just in case, you know, it's not going to be um, successful and they wouldn't find an agreement, then it would have to reimburse, I guess, something around, I don't know, 30 million at least, which still is it's a lot of money. So, Eladia, you know, one of the, the final point that I think that is worth making here is that one of the conclusions that you came to in your piece was the fact that China really is no different than France in many respects in terms of the questions about transparency uh, in their negotiations with the Gabonese government. You, you pointed out that, you know, across Africa there's a perception that the Chinese are, are not transparent, the Chinese are difficult to, to be able to find out information about what their deals are doing, and then you said, well, guess what? It's exactly like what the French are in Gabon. So, there are two really big stereotypes that I think are worth closing on today. Number one is that the neo-colonial argument simply doesn't hold water when, in fact, the French are actually practicing neo-colonialism far more effectively than the Chinese ever could. And then secondly, when it comes to transparency, uh, the Chinese are no different than any other of the foreign actors there. So in some ways, again, this is not to defend the Chinese or to let them off the hook, but it is to put this into a broader context. Uh, give us your final assessments of any key points that people should know when they think about Sino-Gabonese relations and the emergence of Gabon as a as more than just a French actor? Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about Gabon is that it, it, it fits perfectly well um, into this, this, this Western debate over neocolonialism and then um, it, it hasn't really ever attracted much attention from the scholars because it's such a small country and it has been always overwhelmed by bigger uh, or, let's say, more important countries in Africa. And so the interesting thing here is, uh, it's, it's uh, well, I, I say, let's see what's going to happen with this Belinga Iron Ore project because um, this project, if successful, can actually change um, the way, well, even the way people perceive the Chinese in the country, because I guess if, if China does it, 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 it can't do it well, and it can't do it in, in, in the respect of the, of, the, of the environment. And so also, because, you know, the, the only sector where China can actually prove to be more successful than, a, than, than, than the French is actually the, the, the iron sector. So that's going to be interesting in the future. Well, one scholar that we recommend that you take a look at is Johanna Janssen, who we mentioned at the top of the show. She has a piece that uh, she did some research uh, called Chinese Companies in the Extractive Industries of Gabon and the DRC. Just search Google. 
Google for that, and, and you'll find an excellent, excellent analysis of, uh, of the challenges that the Chinese face in Gabon. And it echoes a lot of the, the research that you did, Eladia. Secondly, uh, I highly recommend checking out Al Jazeera's five-part documentary. It's a five-hour documentary called The French Connection, and it really details uh, Jacques Foucault and Omar Bongo and the relationship uh, between the Gabonese and the French. And that's so critical to understand the current uh, challenges that the Chinese face as well. Uh, Eladia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what we do at the end of every show is we really want to kind of leave people at the front door in order for them to find uh, to follow you and to find out more about what you're reading, what you're writing, what you're thinking. Uh, is there anywhere on the internet that people can follow you? Oh, well, actually, um, I'm, I'm writing for a blog, but then it's in Italian, so I'm not sure whether, like, everyone will be able to For read it, our 15 then... Italian listeners, what is the name of that blog? <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll be probably able to translate all my uh, all of my articles in the near future um, in in English. So it's gonna be there's gonna be an English blog soon. So Good. I'll let you know. Well, hopefully we can have some of your China Africa work on uh, on the China Africa website, uh, the China Africa Project website. Uh, Cobus, where can people follow you? Um, you'll see my name on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and you'll see my name in brackets when I comment. And also I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And that Facebook page now has 151,000 followers from all over the world. Interestingly enough, 80% of our followers come from Africa, South Asia, and are under the age of 34. I always find that such an interesting, uh, you know, just highlight and factoid about our audience that it's young, it's engaged, there's a great conversation going on over at Facebook. Kobus and I are posting uh, almost 18 hours a day. I start the day in Asia. Kobus picks it up in Africa. And so uh, we'd love for you to follow there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way is over on iTunes. Uh, just search for China Africa and uh, we'll be right there and you can subscribe. Leave us a comment or give us a rating. It really helps us uh, improve discussion discovery on, on iTunes. And then, of course, you can listen to us on SoundCloud. We've got mobile apps for iPhone and Android, and uh, we're also on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the show. Thank you so much for listening.